Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are in our second to last Old Testament podcast. We are going to talk about Haggai and Zechariah. And both of these prophets, they're contemporaries, and they're also contemporary with the events that happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the second temple period. The Jews are coming out of exile. It's 520 BC, and there's this halt in the construction of the second temple. And Haggai is going to stand up and give a prophetic message to his listeners that we need to stop stopping. We need to start building the temple again. The temple is of preeminent importance, and they must get it built. Now think about the symbolism of this time period. We are coming out of the apostasy and have been asked to rebuild Zion. We have been asked to rebuild the temples, to restore that which has been lost, says the Lord in section 124. And just like that, do you see the symbolism of them coming out of captivity and being asked to rebuild the temple? So this is a very applicable time period in our lives. Now, we talked when we did Ezra and Nehemiah about the opposition that they faced, and we'll do a little of that in Zechariah, but the thing we need to focus on now is, in spite of the opposition, we need to make sure that we have our priorities straight. If we're going to rebuild Zion, if we're going to come out of the apostasy and be the Latter-day Saints that build Zion in preparation for the Lord's coming, we have to make sure we've got our priorities straight, that we're building the right house house first. Now, to set that up, let me take you again to King Benjamin's address. I know over the course of these podcasts, I've done that so many times, but I don't apologize for that because I think this is a fundamental message of the gospel, and we need to understand. In Mosiah chapter 4, King Benjamin tells them to do something. Now, hold on. We'll identify that something in just a minute, but I want to talk about the result of doing it. Notice he starts in verse 12, if you do this one thing, you will always rejoice. You'll be filled with the love of God. You'll retain a remission of your sins. You will grow in the knowledge. And then notice from 13 to 16, my relationship with other people will be right. I won't have a mind to injure. I'll live peacefully. I'll render unto every man according to that which is due. I'll teach my children. I'll teach them to walk in the ways of truth. Verse 16, I will succor those that need succor. All of these are consequences of doing one thing. Now go back to verse 11. What is the one thing? I would that you should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness. If you remember that God is great, and that you aren't, all these things flow. Now, the problem is sometimes we reverse that. And sometimes we focus on me, and we focus on my house and building my kingdom. And it doesn't mean I'm not great. It doesn't mean I don't have value. What he's trying to say is the greatest success comes when you remember that God is great and you build his house. And I really think that's what's going on here in Haggai. That's exactly what's happening. So if you'll turn to Haggai, they're coming back to Babylon. 
and they're supposed to build his kingdom. But notice what they say in verse 2. Oh, it's not time. It's not time to build his house yet. We've got to build ourselves up. We've got to build our house. And it's that natural thinking to focus on me and all the things that I want. And then guess what happens? Notice in verse 4, is it time, O ye, to dwell in your siled houses? Now look at the footnote. We're not talking about basic shacks where they can possibly have some shelter from the storm while they build the temple. They were overbuilding their houses. I don't think the Lord expected them to live in dirt while the temple was built and then build them a house, but notice they've overemphasized it. Look at the footnote on siled. It means paneled. They're overbuilding their house when the Lord's house is lying in ruins. Their focus clearly is on themselves. Verse 6, one of my absolute favorites from the Old Testament. Ye have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. In other words, if you focus on yourself, you don't have the ability to provide for yourself what building his kingdom would provide for you. To build his kingdom ends up building yours in a better way than just focusing on your kingdom. That is an eternal truth of which I stand as a witness. Those moments where my focus has been on me, that's exactly how I describe what I was living. I so much, but I bring in little. I drink, but I'm not filled with drink. It doesn't quench my thirst. But I can testify that what quenches my thirst is to do his work, to serve his children. Ezra Taft Benson said, men and women who turn their lives over to God will discover that he can make a lot more out of their lives than they can. He will deepen their joys, expand their vision, quicken their minds, strengthen their muscles, lift their spirits, multiply their blessings, increase their opportunities, comfort their souls, raise up friends, and pour out peace. So if I focus on me, I will have joy. I can have a quickened mind. But if I will focus on God, then that allows God to help me and deepen those joys and expand my vision and quicken my mind and strengthen my muscles. Or in the words of President Hinckley's dad, oh, you're having a rough time? Forget yourself and go to work. Yeah, I love that. I like this one as well from President Benson, where he said, when we put God first, all other things fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives. Our love of the Lord will govern the claims of our affection, the demands on our time, the interests we pursue, and the order of our priorities. And I see where we are today where there's so much focus on self. And, you know, think about this, Bryce, when you and I were in high school, the word selfie did not exist. Like this is a new term and we live in a world where people are obsessed with looking at themselves on the internet and a lot of this stuff is fabricated. And I think with this comes a great, like a wave of sadness. A lot of people are depressed. And I think one of the ways out of this is literally Haggai chapter one. 
they stopped building the temple and they started focusing on themselves. So the answer is in verse eight of Haggai chapter one, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because mine house that is laid waste and ye run every man unto his own house, therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Now there's an interesting pun happening here in verse 9 and 11. We have this word choreb for drought, and we have chereb for waste. And they sound very similar. And Haggai's playing with that imagery because what he's trying to say is, if you build your house, then the fruit of the land will not yield the bounties thereof. But if you build the Lord's house, then we have fertility in the land. And that's a common theme we see throughout the Old Testament. And so that really is the gist of the first chapter. If your life isn't going well, verse 4, consider your ways, verse 5, consider the path that you're on. And I would say another application of this is if your life isn't going the way you like it to go, then consider your ways, like put someone else first. And in this case, it's the God of Israel. So if you're just missing something in your life, then consider your ways and build his kingdom, hold his priorities, do his work, think as he thinks, love as he loves, and watch how that changes your life. Yeah. Now, before we go to the next chapter, I want to just talk a little bit about some of the people in here. So we have this guy in verse one, his name is Darius. We have another individual named Zerubbabel. And then we have another priestly authority, and his name is Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And so I want to talk a little bit about them, but I'll be really brief. So Darius the Great, in verse one of Haggai 1, was the reigning monarch of the Achaemenid Empire from September of 521-ish to about 486 BC. He's the third king after Cyrus the Great. And if you remember, Cyrus was the one who was responsible for getting into Babylon, freeing the Jews, and making the edict that the Jews could return to rebuild the temple. And so this individual, Darius, is coming at a time after kind of a civil war. There's all these divisions and fractures within the kingdom. And he's kind of putting this down and he's consolidating his power at about 520. And as he's consolidating his power, one of the things he does is he basically establishes these things called satrapies or units under the direction of crown appointed officials that bring order to the empire. So Darius is trying to establish this order. And so what we have in Haggai is this tension. And, and it's, it's under the text, but it isn't in your face. But yet it's there. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And the tension is this. Do we get a king? Remember, you build a temple and every year the king is enthroned because he represents God and he's God's son. And the king is kind of the embodiment of God is with us, as is the temple. 
And so that's where Zerubbabel comes in. So if you look at his name, it's in the first verse of Haggai chapter one, and there's a little footnote, little C there, and it says, he's the grandson of Jehoiachin. Now, remember, that's the same guy who was Kaniah or Jeconiah. He's the guy in the last bit of Second Kings. He was the one who was set free at the end of Second Kings, and the messianic hopes are tied to his genealogical line because he is of the house of David. So this individual, Zerubbabel, is that Davidic line. He is that person. He's supposed to be king. Now, he's not going to be made king, but we're going to read a really interesting prophecy in the second chapter, which is kind of prophetic in the sense of it's a type of Christ. Now, the name Zerubbabel is a really fun name. We'll put this in the show notes for you, but it's kind of a combination of a couple words. One is Babel, and that's what the Babylonians were called. And then we have Zarab, which probably comes from Zara, which means seed, but it can mean sown or he was sown. And so I like to read Zerubbabel's name as he was made in Babylon. Have you ever seen that? Like, when you buy a product and it says made in Mexico or made in China or made in whatever, um, Zerubbabel is basically saying, hey, I was made in Babylon, but he is a son of David. and The symbol of the kingship. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is, this is just my reading on this, but I look at this and I see in a way that's really what all of us are. Like we are made in this fallen world, but we have connection to royalty. Now, the, the last individual I want to talk about is um, Joshua, and that's in verse 12. And he is of the priestly line. And so what we have here is we have a high priest, and we have a king, and they're going to kind of jointly represent the authority of God to the people. And then the third individual is Haggai, and Haggai is going to stand as the prophetic voice. He's the one that's going to say to these two individuals, hey, we got to get this to happen. And so that's kind of the backstory to some of the individuals, some of the time period. And I failed to mention this, but let me just say, I don't think Darius is going to be okay with the Jews having a king. And so we don't have any more kings at this point during the second temple period. And this is kind of the argument that we read back when we did Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember the voices of the naysayers that say, you guys can't build the temple. Their argument was, if you let them build a temple... It's tied to kingship. They'll have a king. And if you let them have a temple and you let them have a king, they're going to revolt. And that really is the underpinnings or like the subtext to a lot of the things that are going to happen in the New Testament, because the people that want Jesus to be king, because they understand this concept, if we make Jesus king, we can kick Rome out. We can have political power. We can kick the bad guys out of our lives and everything's going to be awesome. And Jesus's message was, it never was about that. It never was about political power. You guys are doing it wrong. It's about overcoming our sins, overcoming death, learning how to truly have relationships and love. It's about the symbol of God being your king. Yes. Make God your king. That's what's important. And forget this political stuff. So just know, I just want to make that mention because when you get to chapter two of Haggai, there's this bit at the end that does kind of lend itself towards the expectation of kingship. So those are the people, Darius, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. So with that, let's go to the second chapter. Now notice in chapter one, verse 14, that all of this works and they start to build the temple. The end of verse 14, it says, they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now when they do that, they're going to get discouraged. 
and they should be because the house is in ruins. Notice in verse 3 of chapter 2, the Lord asks, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Are they the same? Have we rebuilt the temple like it was? And the idea is no, this is not what we should build. This isn't the house that we once had and want to have again. So therefore, verse 4, be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I think one of the reasons we study the Old Testament every fourth year in the church is the same idea. Hey, do you see the glory of God being with his people in the Old Testament? Do you see Moses pulling them out of Egypt through a mighty hand and crossing the Red Sea? Do you see all the things that God did with his ancient people? Now, let's rebuild that. That's lost. So you Latter-day Saints, let's rebuild it. Do you see that symbolism where the Lord is saying, do you remember the good days? Now, are we there yet? Is this the house? Is this the end product? And the answer is no. We've got a long ways to go. We've got to build this temple. We've got to build this kingdom. Therefore, I love verse four, the message to the Latter-day Saints who are trying desperately to build the kingdom that once was. Be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I know verse 7 can be read many ways. Verse 7 is, if you build this temple, then about 500 years from now, the desire of nations shall come and fill this house with glory. I think it's a prophecy of Jesus coming and being born. But I think to all of us who are working desperately on rebuilding the Zion that once was and fell, coming out of an apostasy, trying to rebuild the glory of Zion and bring it back and bring temple work back and save the dead and all the things that the Latter-day Saints have to do, I think there's a strong connection between four and seven, that if we work, he is with us. And he will come and fill our house with glory. Not just the temples and the future temples, but if you will join this cause, if you will build up Zion wherever you are, however you can contribute. Now, there's going to be moments where we're discouraging, and we saw that in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's going to be moments where there are enemies trying to stop our progress. But when those moments come, let's work because he is going to work with us, and he will come and fill our houses with glory. Excellent. Now, I want to address the apparent issue with a possible contradiction in Haggai 2, verses 3 and 9. So if you look in verse 3, which Bryce read, talking about the new house, and in comparison, it is nothing. That's verse 3. Then you go to verse 9, it says, The glory of the latter house shall be greater than that of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, back when we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah, The people that come back and rebuild the temple weep when they realize that the second temple is not as great as the first. So is verse 9 a contradiction? And some people say it is, and maybe it is, but there's other ways to read it. What if we read this as the remodeled temple of Jesus's day that was a lot grander 
could be a fulfillment of verse 9. That's one possibility. Another possibility is this, that as beautiful as Solomon's temple had been, that first Israelite temple, this new second temple, when compared to it, what if both of them, meaning neither the first or the second temple, would be as glorious as a yet future temple that would one day exist when the Lord would give peace to his holy city? What if this is a millennial prophecy that in the millennial day, the house of the Lord will be filled with glory because the Lord himself will be there? And I think that is a possible interpretation of verse 9, especially when we read it in conjunction with John's revelation, where he talks about the light of the Lord is so bright that you don't even need a sun. Now, I don't know. But I'm just trying to find alternate readings for verse 9. Now, later in Haggai 2, we read this interesting bit. Go to verse 12. Haggai says, If one bears holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered, No. That's just basic law of Moses. Let's just check in what does the law say, and the answer is the law says no, it's not clean. And then Haggai said, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Again, that's just what's written in the law. It's unclean. You can't do that. And then verse 14, then answered Haggai and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And that which they offer there is unclean. Because Israel died and was a dead body, and you touched it, and now you're unclean to build this temple. I think that's the assumption. I think, yeah, I think there's lots of ways to read it. I mean, clearly he wants them to build it, but maybe, I don't know, maybe verse 13 has to do with when he says they're unclean because they stopped building, or maybe it's their attitude, or maybe, and this is another argument for another day, but maybe there's multiple audiences here in Haggai's presence and not everybody is on board. I think some of that flexibility is really played out in Paul Hansen's book called Dawn of the Apocalyptic, that not all the Jews are on board with the rebuilding of the Second Temple. But there's another reading here I want to just emphasize that I think really applies to a Latter-day Saint audience, and it's this. Verse 12 kind of gives this notion that if you take an offering and you touch something with it, the bread or the pottage, it doesn't transfer the holiness to it. What if this is also Haggai trying to say that mere contact with the temple does not make you holy? And so what if we transfer this over to all the ordinances and all the things that we do from a religious context and we say, okay, taking the sacrament doesn't make me holy. Now it's an ordinance We do it, and it's symbolic, but it's what's in our heart that really matters. We're back to that idea in Hosea 6, 6, where the Lord says, what I really wanted was hesed. I really wanted that deep and abiding covenant love. And if you have that, I can take you far. I really wanted to really emphasize that with verse 12, that just going to church or just like going to the temple doesn't make me holy, but it it is part of it. But really, it's about this relationship that we've talked about as we've gone through the Old Testament. And I want to point out one more while we're on that subject. He's kind of saying, look, you haven't been worthy, and maybe you aren't worthy to build this temple. And so he says in verse 15, change, just change. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple. In other words, just get ready, just get better. 
and then everything will be fine. This is a God that doesn't look back and say, but you were once naughty, and so you'll always be naughty in my eyes. Not at all. He says it twice. He says, look, because when you were not obeying, I smote you, verse 17, with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hand, yet ye turned not to me. Therefore, what? Is he going to punish you today because you didn't obey yesterday? No, he says in verse 18, consider now from this day and upward, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid and consider it, and I will bless you. That's the God that we worship. So if you haven't been diligent in following the Lord's commandments, then don't just walk away from the work because of it. Just fix that. That's why we have an atoning sacrifice of Christ. That's why we repent. Just fix it and move forward. So yes, I think he's acknowledging that you haven't been the people worthy to build a temple. So make yourself so. And hence we repent every day. And the Lord says, I'm good. Move forward. You've repented. You're clean. That's great application. At the end of Zechariah 1, we read this pronouncement to Zerubbabel. So it's verse 21. We're just going to read that to the end. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. And I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts." Okay, first of all, what's going on in verse 22? What is the heathen that's being predicted to be overthrown? You read in scholarship, this could be apocalyptic. And so I'm going to take this as an allegory, and I'm going to take Zerubbabel as an allegory for Jesus. And if I read it that way, it makes perfect sense. If I try to read this from a Peshat perspective where everything's literal, then I run into all kinds of snags because I really don't see Zerubbabel conquering heathen nations. So let's talk about what Zerubbabel is prophesied of. It says that he's going to be the governor of Judah and that the Lord's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And then in the 23rd verse, he calls him his servant. This is God speaking. And then he says, I'm going to make you a signet for I have chosen thee. Now, a signet is like a seal. It's something that they used in uh, antiquity for official acts that were used to authorize the monarch's approval. So like a ring would be a great signet. And it just meant if I had it, that I could use it to represent the king. And so the use of this seal was a way of carrying out the authority of the person to whom the seal belonged. So that's what a signet is. And then we have this idea that he is chosen. Now, this is Robert Alter here. He says this, while neither king nor anointed appears in this text, might Haggai have feared that these could be politically dangerous terms? The strong implication is that Zerubbabel, as a descendant of the Lion of David, now presiding over the rebuilding of the temple, is the chosen heir to David's throne. So we see Robert Alter 
looking at this text and he says, okay, Haggai's not using the word king or anointed, but we read in this story of Zerubbabel as the Davidic descendant, like he should be king, but we're not using those words. And part of it is, is because it's a political hot potato. We can't, but it's hinted at. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread those verses and say, okay, what is this saying and how does it apply to me? And if I look at Zerubbabel as a type of Christ, Zerubbabel is the presiding authority of the exiles who want to return to the Holy Land. Well, what if Jesus is the presiding officer, the signet, the person authorized to represent the Father who God has chosen to bring me an exile into holiness. And if I read it that way, verses 21 through 23, speak to my soul. If I read them historically, I get lost in the weeds. And so that's how I read the end of Haggai. To me, it's all Jesus. I can't help myself, but to each his own. Every Everybody gets to read it in their own way, but I find it really comforting to my soul to read it this way in the sense that God's going to fix things and that this individual represents a Savior. Now, picking up what Mike just said, that Zerubbabel, the symbol of the king, is also a symbol of authority and God with his people. So also is Joshua, the high priest. So we've got a kingly figure and we've got a key holder in the high priest. Now, those two are going to take a prominent role in the book of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah can be broken into two pieces. We've got the first eight or so chapters, which are really dealing with them, then, their And then we've got the last 9 through 14 are prophecies, kind of this bigger picture, and they mention a lot of prophecies of Christ coming and then the latter days. So we'll do that separately. But among these first eight or nine chapters is one of my absolute favorite messages for the Latter-day Saints. So seeing Zerubbabel and Joshua as symbols of what we would probably point to prophet, seers, and revelators today. God with us in the presence of a prophet, seer, and revelator as symbolized by Zerubbabel and Joshua. I want to jump to chapter four because it is to me a glorious message to the Latter-day Saints. Now we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah all the efforts of the enemy to stop the building of the kingdom. But one of the reasons we are not going to be stopped is because we have the anointed ones with us. And that's the message that Zechariah is going to receive. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he wakes up, he's awakened and given a vision. And in that vision, he sees a candlestick. And on top of the candlestick, like we saw anciently, were bowls. They didn't have wicks like we do in our candles today, it was a bowl of oil. So a candlestick with a large bowl on top of it and seven lamps thereon. So it lit and it was fueled by oil. And then he sees in verse three, two olive trees standing next to it, one on the right side and one on the left. And guess what the olive trees were doing? They were pumping oil into the candlestick. Now, let me just play with that image a little bit. This candle is not going to be defeated. It's not going to be destroyed. It's not going to run out of fuel and go out of light because it has a source of fuel. It has two trees, two olive trees standing next to it, pumping oil into the candlestick. 
So Zechariah must have seen this, and his confidence in building up the temple must have grown. The Lord will not let the candle blow out because we have a source of fuel. At the very end of chapter 4, he says, these two, the trees on both sides, are the anointed ones, the ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And therefore, his conclusion is what our conclusion should be in building Zion today in the latter days. The conclusion is in verse 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's how we're going to succeed. Not because we're bigger, not because we're stronger, not because we're smarter, but because we have the anointed ones. We have olive trees standing next to the candle that are pumping fuel in. And they are prophets, seers, and revelators. And so Zerubbabel concludes against every opposition, and we should do the same thing. With so many people trying to thwart the progress of the kingdom of God today, we say in verse 7, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Russell Nelson? Thou shalt become a plain. I'm in verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. That ought to fill every one of us with confidence in the future. That this work will not be thwarted. It will not be stopped. You cannot blow this candle out. Because we have anointed ones that stand with God. And they are pumping oil into that candlestick. So no matter what's coming, no matter the opposition against the growth of the kingdom, hear those words, who art thou, O mountain, before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. Now, let me remind you, I'm going to take you back to Ezra, because Ezra talks about Haggai and Zechariah. In the book of Ezra, Ezra records in chapter 5, then the prophet, Haggai the prophet, And Zechariah came and taught, and then verse 2, Then rose up Zerubbabel and Joshua and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And then this beautiful phrase, And with them were the prophets of God helping them. He names them. That's what Ezra noticed, and that's exactly what we're reading this week in Come, Follow Me, is that we are going to succeed at building this temple that no force can stop us because the prophets of God were helping them. And he probably is referring to this vision of Zechariah with the trees pumping their oil right into the candlestick. And so we Latter-day Saints, as we look at all the forces against good and all the forces against Zion being built up, we need to say the same thing. The prophets of God are with us and helping us, and we will not fail. Yeah, I like that. So Bryce just looked at Zechariah chapter 4, which is one of a series of eight visions that Zechariah has. It's actually the fifth of eight visions. And so what we're going to do now is just kind of back up and look at those eight visions. And I will just say that I think that these visions do fit the culture and context of a second temple Jew. 
But these visions also could lend themselves to an interpretive lens to help us understand other scriptures. And so as we go through this, just be aware that we're going quick through this, but you can kind of take some time and think about all these as you go and read the scriptures. So the first vision is this vision of these writers, and it's in the first chapter of Zechariah in verses 7 through 17. In this vision that he sees in the first chapter, the prophet Zechariah saw four writers who had been observing the conditions on the earth. They found everything to be at peace. Therefore, Judah had no excuse for not building the temple. This is a really important thing to Zechariah, this idea that you've got to build the temple. The second vision starts in chapter 1 at about verse 18. And it goes to verse 21. It's really short, but what he sees are four horns that are symbols of power that seem to have participated in the scattering of Israel. And it's probable that the prophet didn't have four actual kingdoms in mind in his day, but he could have been alluding to those forces that would or that did prevail against God's people from every quarter. Now, there's lots of ways to look at it, but it's a short vision of these four horns. And then you go to the second chapter, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, Zechariah sees a man who set out to measure the dimensions of the holy city. Now, I'm just going to pause here, and I'm just going to say, if you're a fan of the book of Revelation, you're probably seeing a pattern. We have the writers, we have four horns, these powers, and now we have this person measuring the dimensions of the city. You kind of see some of this stuff in Revelation. So I would just say, I'm not declaring anything. I would just say, think about that. But in this chapter, he sees this idea that before Zion can come, Judah must break free from the spiritual bonds of Babylon. And so a really good comparison text to the second chapter of Zechariah is DNC 45 verses 66 through 70. Those verses are really important, especially later in the context of Zechariah, as Zechariah starts talking about some of the things about uh, the person who comes down who's been wounded in his hands. We'll see that later. Also in Zechariah chapter 2, I can't help myself, I have to talk about verse 8. We read this line that says, For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. That's a really neat poetic phrase, and... I just think that's really cool. Like the apple of his eye. It could mean like the opening of his eye or the gate of his eye. So if you have like a, a child that you just love, you could say that is the apple of my eye. Or you could say that about your spouse. They're reflected in your eyes. They own the gate of your eyes. It's just a beautiful poetic phrase. Okay. The fourth vision is in the third chapter of Zechariah and it's verses one through 10. And in this bit, Zechariah sees the priest, Joshua, standing before an angel. And his ordination becomes a type of a future high priest called the branch. You see that there in verse 8. Okay, The term was sometimes used in a technical sense by the prophets to designate Christ in his role as the millennial King David. We're going to see some of that in Isaiah 4 and Jeremiah 23. The branch would rightly own or hold not only the keys of kingship, but also priesthood and the things associated with the temple. So there's some really neat things to do with this idea of branch. And I, I like this idea and I haven't really fleshed it out or written anything on it. So there's nothing in the show notes, but this idea of a branch can be applied to Nazareth and can be applied to the stick or the wood, the eights. And it's also tied to the counselor 
there's just a lot going on here with this idea of a of a servant that has a branch or a staff, and I can't help myself. I have to make a Tolkien reference. I see Gandalf with the staff. I see Moses with the staff. I go to Freeburg where he has Samuel on a wall and he's got the staff. Oh, sorry, geek out moment over. But that vision kind of proceeds to the fifth vision, which is the one Bryce talked about, which is the olive trees. And by the way, that's in Revelation 2. And then the sixth and seventh vision are really fun. I remember teaching this in seminary, and I, I, I would have students just get a kick out of verse 1 of chapter 5, right? There's a food fight in the scriptures. Chapter 5, verse 1 reads, I turned and I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. Now, it's really a scroll. Like, he sees this, this holy book, but you can imagine teaching ninth graders in seminary thinking that it's a flying roll. But to be serious... This vision is Zechariah seeing a scroll, which seems to represent judgment of the Lord upon those who have chosen to break his law. That's kind of what's going on in chapter five, verse three. And then it segues into this other vision of a woman in a barrel or an ephah. It could be a basket. That's kind of what I see it as in verse six, is a woman in an ephah or a basket, and it represents filthiness, and she's kind of representing the apostate state of Babylon. So the eighth vision and the final one in this segment of Zechariah, and remember, Zechariah is kind of like two books. You have the first bit in the first eight chapters, and then we shift in chapter nine. And so the eighth vision is in chapter six, verses one through 15. And in this, he essentially sees the sovereignty of the Lord. He sees symbolic representations of the servant of the Lord subduing the nations in all the corners of the earth. That's the first eight verses of chapter six. And then the command comes to crown Joshua in the similitude of the crowning of the branch, the millennial high priest, the great temple builder. And so in a way, once again, I see that as Jesus. So look at chapter six, verse 11. Then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Verse 12, and speak unto him saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall build the temple of the Lord and bear the glory and sit and rule upon his throne. Now to me, when I read that, that's kingship and that's Jesus And that is, to me, prophetic of who he is. Now, in this chapter, we just read that it's Joshua, but I like the chapter heading. I really think it's valuable where it says, Zechariah crowns Joshua, the high priest, in similitude of Christ. And so that really wraps up those eight visions in this first section of Zechariah. Then... If you go to chapter eight, we, we see this vision or this experience that Zechariah has where it says in verse two, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was zealous for Zion with great jealousy. Thus saith the Lord, verse three, I am returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That's millennial to me. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Verse seven, thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east and from the west, and I will bring them and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. And to me, when I read this, I feel it. 
And what I feel is that desire that God has, a place where you can live in your old age and the children can play in the streets and God is with them. I mean, what a beautiful millennial prophecy. And I'm looking at this on the page, and I just, I have to mention this. If you just go to the left from verse four, I love this. This is verse 10 of the previous chapter, chapter seven, where the Lord says in verse nine and 10, he says, execute true judgment, execute mishpat and show mercy every man to his brother and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, nor the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. That is biblical theology. That's how we live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just think it's beautiful. So good. So with that, let's go to chapter nine. Chapter 9 kind of begins the apocalyptic coming of Jesus, triumph over evil. And there are numerous references that the New Testament writers are going to pull in and say, see, that's Jesus. One of them is in chapter 9, verse 9. Now, we'll save our commentary on that when we get to the New Testament. But what I would like to do is just dwell on the language here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. This is an oxymoron. This is a juxtaposition. This is a foil in the same verse that your king is coming to you. Now, if you think about anciently or even modern, Think how kings return from battle. Think how professional sports team that win a national championship return to their city. Think about the glory that we usually would expect at that type of a coming. The parades, the pomp, the circumstance. The king who went off to battle and conquered the enemy and was coming back to the city would be received with all of that glory. And yet here comes our king, lowly, not riding on an elephant, not in a parade, but on a little donkey. Now that irony tells you everything we need to know about not only the God that we worship, but what it takes to follow him and be one of his. Do you remember way back in pre-mortal life where someone said, I will do all these good things as long as I get credit for it. Give me the glory for everything that I do. I want to stand up in front of people and be praised and honored because I did something good. And Jesus, as opposed to that, simply said, no, I will go do the work and give thee the glory for everything that I accomplish. That is the God that we worship. He is not seeking his own glory. He is seeking to do the Father's will in his life. So here comes our King, worthy of every praise we could heap upon him for the victories he's conquered. And yet he comes to us lowly. And if we're going to follow him, we have to be the same kind of people. We have to be willing to say, Lord, I'll go do the work, but I don't need the glory. I don't need the credit. One of my favorite quotations from Joseph Fielding Smith, he was very much a scholar. He wrote so many books and did so many good things in his life. But I love what he said at his solemn assembly. And this is the moment where he's going to be sustained as president of the church. And can you guess what he said? 
he stood up in that moment and said, men are only instruments in the Lord's hands, and the honor and glory for all that his servants accomplish is and should be ascribed unto him forever. That was a king riding lowly on a little donkey. That's the image of the Lord's servants, and we need to follow him that same way, worthy of glory for the effort we've put in, but not seeking it, simply seeking to follow him. That's the kind of people we need to be, the kind of people who have conquered great enemies the enemy of their natural man, the enemy of the opposition, every one of us who have conquered the crosses of our lives. And that's a major victory. But we need to respond lowly. That, I think, is a beautiful image, not just of Jesus. And I love that the New Testament authors saw Jesus in this verse. There's some neat things going on with what you're teaching in the previous bits of that chapter. So if you just go to verse 3, Tyre is a huge Phoenician stronghold and they own so much and they're involved in the slave trade and they have such wealth. So this is kind of like I'm cherry picking one of the greatest cities, at least according to you know my reading of history, as far as power goes at this time in 520. And then Zechariah says this in verse three, Tyre built herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the street. So imagine you have so much gold that's just like dust in the road. The Lord will cast her, Tyre, out and he will smite her power in the sea and she shall be devoured with fire. So it's the opposite of what you're talking about. They have everything and the Lord's like, no, they're gonna lose it. It's pretty interesting the way that this is poetically set up. Go to verse 10. The Lord says, I'm going to cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. This idea of the cosmic king, or maybe even the king that comes in, the just king riding on the donkey, will speak peace to the heathen. For me, I read that as prophetic. And we talked about this earlier with the apocalyptic writings of some of these early second century visionaries where they talked about the son of man, when he comes, will redeem the heathen. And that same idea is taught in the Doctrine and Covenants, that the heathen nations shall be redeemed when the Lord comes. That's in section 45. Look at the end of the verse. Back to verse 10. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's who Jesus is. He rules from the river to the ends of the earth. But he's that guy that you're talking about, Bryce. He's the guy that comes in humble. That's just who he is. The 10th chapter is filled with metaphors for the leaders or the champions of the people. And it also has some really neat bits in it about bringing Israel back together. And so you might want to read some of those. I would recommend that you read verse 6 and verse 11 and 12. Those are really good verses for that. The 11th chapter is really interesting. It's a story essentially of a good shepherd who tries to save his sheep, but he cannot. And he has these two staffs. And in the King James, one staff is called beauty and the other one is going to be called bands. They have different names depending on which translation you, you get into, but we'll go with that. He has these two staffs and he tries to save his sheep, but no matter what he does, he can't save them. So he finally just throws in the towel. He breaks his staffs, and then he goes in, and he demands payment. He's like, listen, 
Give me my price. That's verse 12 of chapter 11. And they pay him 30 pieces of silver. And then the text says that he throws the silver before the potter, which is in the house of the Lord. That's verse 13. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled on this verse. For those of you that are interested, I'll geek out on the show notes. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of things you can do with it because the Hebrew has some ambiguity and some flexibility. But I'm just going to say this. He throws the silver before the potter, which is a testimony of his rejection and how he was not able to save the sheep. But here's where it gets interesting. This is a great interpretation from Richard Draper. What if this is an allegory? And what if this is future? And it represents the true shepherd, Jesus, who was sold for 30 pieces of silver and delivered over to false priests. Now, I think it's a beautiful interpretation because if you go to the end of chapter 11, verse 15, look what happens. After the staffs are broken and we throw the money, verse 15 says, the Lord said to me, take yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. I'm going to call that a bad shepherd. For lo, I'll raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither seek the young one, nor heal that is broken, nor feed that which standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws to pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. In other words, the end of that chapter goes from this poor shepherd that's trying to save the sheep to these bad shepherds that aren't doing their work. And to me, I do see that as a prophetic possible allegory, and it represents Jesus as the true shepherd. And we have some of these things going on with the 30 pieces of silver. And then you can do a deep dive on what's going on with the potter. And then you get into the gospels. And we'll talk about this when we get there. But you know, one of the accounts talks about the 30 pieces of silver used to buy the potter's field. And so there's a lot of connection there. I'm not entirely convinced on all of it, but there's enough there to make you go, that's really interesting. And it could be prophetic of the Savior. I'm just open to that interpretation. But now we're going to go to the 12th chapter. And to me, I think chapters 12 through 14 are really worth reading every verse. If you're somebody who's trying to read Come Follow Me and sometimes you're overwhelmed and you're thinking, I can't possibly read it all, I would highly encourage you to read these chapters for sure. And make sure you read Doctrine and Covenants section 45 as well. You're going to find so many connections and clarifications in section 45 that highlight these verses. I wonder if Joseph was working on the Joseph Smith translation and he was in the Old Testament, he was in Zechariah, and that brought about section 45. But there's going to be a major connection between them. So we're talking Millennial Day, we're talking Triumph Over Evil, we're talking about the future of Jerusalem and the enemies that are facing it. And I'm going to turn to section 45, verse 66, and I want to remember the prophecy about the new Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God, and the glory of the Lord will be there. And then it says, verse 68, it shall come to pass that among the wicked, that every man that will not take his sword against his neighbor must flee unto Zion for safety. So there's going to be war poured out everywhere else. Verse 69, there shall be gathered out of it to every nation under heaven, and it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. So we're talking about a future day where there will be war poured out upon this planet 
but there will be a safe place for the saints and the righteous people to dwell in Zion. And in that setting, we're going to read a lot that's going to happen in chapters 12 through 14. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 12, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. In that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. The end of verse 6, it says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Now, Zechariah 12, 2, and 3 really do reflect the political circumstance of our day. In my opinion, I kind of see this as reflecting the political circumstance starting at about 1948. Like, there has been tension there. And if you go and visit Jerusalem and you talk to the locals— you know, they're navigating the complexities of the politics and what do we do about the occupied territories and whose land is it and who has a right to go into this certain neighborhood. And it's a real political maze. And so I find this interesting that here's this prophecy from 520 BC and it's relevant in our day. And then if you do a, a wider lens, the time period from 520 BC to 2022, it's still relevant. We still have the emperors of Rome saying, what do I do with Jerusalem? We have one emperor at one point saying, you know what, I'm just going to wreck it and we're going to give it a new name. And I'm going to put a temple to Jupiter right there where the temple is and that'll fix everything. And then that kind of works for a while. And then we have the Christians come in and they are going to rip that down and they're going to say, no, we're going to build holy sites here. And and then we have the conflicts between Christians and Muslims and, and what happens over hundreds of years time. We could do like a multi-podcast on just verse two and three historically. Now, in the context of what Bryce is talking about, apocalyptic future stuff, and when we look at this through the lens of section 45, I just want to nerd out about verse six for a second. So look at verse six. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. Now that word hearth, is a container used to burn charcoal or other solid fuel for cooking, heating, or cultural rituals. It often takes the form of a metal box or a metal bowl with feet, and its elevation helps to circulate the air, feeding oxygen to the fire. The ancients used these hearths in their cultic ceremonies. So imagine a super duper hot piece of metal that's elevated. Now, if you go to Helaman chapter 5, verse 23, we read the story of Nephi and Lehi in the context of being surrounded by their enemies. And we read, quote, it came to pass that Nephi and Lehi were encircled about as if by fire, even in so much that they durst not lay their hands upon them for fear, lest they should be burned. Nevertheless, Nephi and Lehi were not burned. They were standing as in the midst of fire and were not burned. And when they saw that they were encircled about with a pillar of fire and it burned them not, their hearts did take courage. Now, that to me is what's going on in verse six, that we have this experience where the enemies of Judah are surrounding them, but we have a select group of individuals in verse six who are like, quote, and hearth, because in the context of these chapters, the people that live in Jerusalem are going to win. 
and they're not supposed to. They're outnumbered. It's like me trying to put on a football helmet and suit up and play in the NFL against Tom Brady. Like, I'm not going to win, right? There's no chance I'm going to win. And yet the author of Zechariah says, no, they're going to win because they're like a hearth of fire among the wood. And my reading of this is, no, they have the power of God. Now, look at verse 7. The Lord shall save the tents of Judah first. Verse 8. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. So can you see God's power with them? And then verse 9. It shall come to pass in that day, I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. Let's go to chapter 13. Verse 1 says, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanliness. And the way I read verse 1 of chapter 13 is it's a new spring. And could this be the spring that Ezekiel sees in the 47th chapter that heals the land? I, I submit that as a possibility. And then the Lord says in the second verse that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. He's going to protect his people. And in the midst of protecting his people, he's also going to, in verse 3 and 4 of this chapter, cut off the false prophets, which leads us to a really provocative verse, which causes us to think, and that's verse 6. And this is such a powerful message here, because the Savior's been talking about protecting his people. Who are the people that the Lord's going to conquer? Who are the Lord's enemies? Because all of us have at one point kind of pushed him away. Do you remember how Isaiah says we hid our faces from him? All of us have rejected him in one way or another. I don't want to call out any one particular person or one particular group, but I am going to remind you what the Lord says in Doctrine and Covenants 45. Going back to 45, he says, Then shall the Jews look upon me and shall say, What are these wounds in thine hands and in thine feet? And they shall know that I am the Lord, for I will say unto them, These wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the Son of God. But I think we're all in that position. We're all in the position that at one point in my life, in our lives, we have been an enemy to Christ. Do you remember how the Book of Mormon says the natural man is an enemy? And I am very much a natural man. I have done things that have hurt him. So let's read these, but read the intent in which he's giving them. I want to start back in chapter 12. In the midst of all of this, I'm going to destroy my enemies. I'm going to take vengeance on the, on the people who have destroyed my people. He says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And that leads us to chapter 13, verse 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? And then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, Mike, that's not what it says in Hebrew, right? What does it say in Hebrew? It isn't friends. The word is deep and abiding love. What are these wounds in your hands? And he will respond, those with which I was wounded in the house of those that I love. He uses that root word for deep and abiding love. Some translators even translate it as 
I receive this in the house of my most loved. Now, what is the normal reaction to someone that close to you, that far into your inner circle, who then turns around and hurts you? History is going to tell us exactly what that normal reaction is, right? Families who once were close and yet harmed each other and now war for the rest of their lives. And yet what Jesus is saying is, I'm not that person. Even though you pierced me, even though you wounded me, I am not going to turn my back on you. That's what makes these verses so beautiful. The Lord had an ancient people and then had to restore the truth to another people because that ancient people walked away from him. And yet, how does he feel about that ancient people? Those are his people. He deeply loves them. I love that verse in the Book of Mormon where the Lord says, Oh, fools, they shall have a Bible and it shall proceed forth from the mouth of the Jews, mine ancient covenant people. And what thank they, the Jews, for the Bible which they received from them? Yea, what do the Gentiles mean? Do they remember the travails and the labors and the pains of the Jews? And can I just insert this here, Bryce? It's a lot of work to translate this and for them to write down every character. And when we get into the historical weeds of how we even have the Bible, they literally counted every single character. And then they would go and say, okay, what's the middle character of each book? And that's how they would know if the text had been tampered with. They were so meticulous to try to repeat this. Remember, they don't have printers and hard drives, so the scroll wears out and you gotta keep it new. And so they would copy it with exactness That is a ton of work. We're sitting here looking at our scriptures and thinking, oh, this is just great. And I think, no, there's so much work to get it produced, right? And he kind of asked, do they remember the travails and the labors and the pains of the Jews and their diligence unto me in bringing forth salvation unto the Gentiles? Oh, ye Gentiles, have ye remembered the Jews, mine ancient covenant people? Nay, but ye have cursed them and have hated them and have not sought to recover them. But behold, I will return all these things upon your own heads, for I, the Lord, have not forgotten my people. That's what makes these words so significant, is the Lord is saying, you wounded me, but I'm not running away. I'm not giving up on our relationship. I love that as we are now heralds of his message in the modern day, remembering that he still loves his ancient people who were heralds of his word in their day, which gives me hope that he will remember me. I think these verses aren't a rebuke to the people who once pierced him and once wounded him. They are a reminder that he still welcomes them back home. He still considers them his loving people. That's the God that we worship. And you see him so beautifully in these verses in Zechariah and feel his love for you. So as we go into the 14th chapter, I just have to say this. Section 45 tells me this is still relevant. Very much so. Joseph Smith gets this revelation. I can't read section 45 without coming to these passages. 
So verse two of the 14th chapter says that all nations are gathered against Jerusalem to battle. And it does say that the city will be taken. A portion of it will be taken. But verse three says that the Lord will fight against those nations. And verse four, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north and half towards the south. And then we read this event of living waters, verse 8, that go out from Jerusalem half towards the former sea and half towards the hinder sea. And to me, I read that with Ezekiel 47, the waters that come from underneath the Holy of Holies and heal the land. And then there's this enigmatic passage in verse six. It shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. Another translation is this, that there will be continuous daylight even during the night. Now in the book of Mormon, we read there was a day and a night and a day when the savior came to the Nephites. Could this be a prophecy of the savior's second coming? I don't know, but I say the verse at least lends itself to that possible interpretation. And the pattern. Remember, the coming of the Savior to the Americas the first time is like the pattern of the Savior coming to the world. The second coming is like the first coming in the Book of Mormon. And the sign of his coming, the great sign. Now, there's numerous prophecies all throughout the Doctrine and Covenants that says a great sign is going to be given, a sign that we will all see together, a sign that is testifying that we need to receive the King. And in the Book of Mormon, the pattern was that the sun went down and it didn't get dark. And then Ezekiel 14, 7 says, It shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And that's exactly what happened in Third Nephi. At evening time it was light. Now think about the symbolism. When Jesus was killed— when he hung on the cross and his life ended, there were earthquakes and darkness. And in America, that piercing darkness lasted for days. They couldn't even light a fire. The symbolism of taking Jesus out of this world is darkness when there's supposed to be light. And the symbolism of Jesus coming into this world is light when there should be darkness. It would not surprise me if Ezekiel is, in fact, prophesying of the great sign in our day, one that the whole world will notice. The sun will go down and it will not get dark. So that's an intriguing prophecy, and we'll wait to see. Someday, I imagine, a prophet will clarify that, and we'll know exactly what the great sign will be. Or it'll happen, and we'll just go, oh, it was that, yep. right? I really like verse 11 of chapter 14. It kind of harkens back to other things we've talked about. Men shall dwell in it, meaning Jerusalem, and there shall be no more utter destruction, and Jerusalem will be safely inhabited. It's the people that make it the city of God. You can't build a celestial city if you're not a celestial people. We learned that in Jackson County. The Lord said that throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, and because they weren't a celestial people— they couldn't build the celestial city. So here we're talking about building up Jerusalem and dwelling in Jerusalem. But what we really need to talk about is being the kind of people that can build a city of God. It's not so much the city. It's the people 
And I think this is kind of the theme that if we're going to build Zion, if we're going to rebuild the temple, if we're going to have this glorious city come where the Lord's going to dwell, we have to be a holy people. And so I love that Zechariah ends with a beautiful prophecy in verse 20. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses. In other words, this is the ringing sound the world should hear when we approach. This is what we must be if we're going to build that city. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses, in all caps, holiness unto the Lord. It's written on our temples, but the question is, is it written on us? Is it written on my forehead? The Lord needs a people to be holy so that he can build a temple that is holy so that he can build a city that is holy. May we walk away from these chapters determined to rise up and be his people. Holiness to the Lord. It is our testimony that as you build his kingdom, regardless of what's happened in the past, regardless of anything that you've done or anything that you've been, if you commit today and start building his kingdom, He will be with us, and His presence will fill our homes, our chapels, our Sunday school classes, our institutes and seminaries, and it will fill our temples. May we be that people, holy unto the Lord. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we cover the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.